Welcome to the Europe in the World podcast. In this series, we will discuss the very relevant topic of European energy policy and the unfolding energy crisis. We invited four different guests to join us in this series. This podcast project is overseen by Dr. Kaya Shielde, Associate Professor of International Relations at BU's Party School of Global Studies, and Jean Monet Chair in European Security and Defense. My name is Lisi. I'm a master's student in international affairs at BU. And I'm Greta, also a master's student in international economics. I'm Jacopo, an undergraduate senior in international relations. I'm excited to welcome Alberic Mongrenier to join me today for our Europe in the World podcast series. Mr. Mongrenier is the Director of the Energy and Sustainability and Mobility Practice at the Center on Regulation in Europe. He works with both SARE members and European policymakers on sustainability issues. Good morning, Mr. Mongrenier, and thank you for being a part of our podcast today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. We are excited to learn from your expertise. And with that, we can dive into our first question. So um, what central environmental policies have shaped Europe's energy agenda in recent years and how do they tie into Europe's environment action program? Well, the, I mean, the centerpiece of uh, European regulation geared at uh, guiding the continent's climate uh, transition, the climate neutrality objectives is, and I think, you know, you everybody's heard about it all around the world now, the European Green Deal, uh, which uh, in itself is uh, it's not just one piece of legislation or you know one piece of regulation it's actually a huge package because the, the European Union loves uh, putting together big packages of legislation that you know they, they, they put they like to put on the table all at the same time uh, they've take it to 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 an extreme point with the European Green Deal because uh, you know I, I don't I can't even remember how many how many pieces of legislation that represents but uh, it covers basically all sectors of the economy and you know he has uh, every sector is affected by it uh, the overall objective is to reach again you know carbon carbon neutrality by by 2050 uh, with a an intermediary target of uh, 55% of emissions reduction uh, by 2030 and another intermediary target of uh, for 2040 that has yet to be set. So that is really uh, the one piece of policy that has been shaping Europe's action on the environmental front in recent years. So that was published, that started in 2019 with the, the new European Commission that came to power that year. Uh, and, you know, policy and regulatory files have been landing on people's desks since that date, progressively. There's a big piece that concerns energy that's funnily named Fit for, for 55, uh, referencing the, the 55% reduction targets uh, by 2030 uh, that I spoke about before. Um, that's very much focused on energy, you know, which remains the, the main sector and the main issue to tackle uh, when it comes to reducing emissions. How does this tie into the 2022 Environment Action Program? Well, I mean, it's a big word. That, so this action program is a big word for actually not so much. It's more setting up the vision 
uh, towards 2050, which actually had largely been done already since since 2019, but really uh, setting a clear vision of uh, the kind of you know environmental policy that Europe wants to promote by 2050, and also emphasizing also the um, the measure the measurement aspect of, of the transition because I mean there's you know measuring progress against the target is something that uh, has been difficult in the past and I think I think this action plan that to be to be honest I haven't looked at in in details but uh, the main point is setting a vision and the second is make sure that uh, we develop proper measurement tools that allow us to monitor our progress against the, the 2050 goals as we move towards that date. Okay, awesome. Thank you. So for our next question, how did the Paris Agreement change the EU's objectives in counteracting climate change? And more specifically, how have EU mem member states coordinated their actions in Europe and with their international partners to achieve the targets set by the European Green Deal and the emissions trading scheme? A good question. Um... So, I mean, the Paris Agreement was definitely very important. It, let's say it did not radi radically change the, the course, the general direction that Europe was taking, but it did accelerate it quite a bit. Uh, so Europe already had dedicated climate legislation, already had renewable energy targets, already, you know, a lot of things already existed. The main difference is that suddenly objectives uh, became a lot more ambitious. Uh, I think there was a realization of the urgency of, uh, of the issue that you know, wasn't there before. There was you know, an overall awareness of, of the issue that had to be tackled, but we maybe did not realize that you had to tackle so fast or that we're so late to the battle. So that did, the Paris Agreement did have a big, big influence in accelerating uh, the yeah the, the move towards net zero at European level. How have member states been coordinating? So that's been done, you know, mostly here in Brussels via different, you know, the different existing European institutions. So you've got, you know, the European Council that sort of, you know, regroups representatives from the member states. Uh, so the different governments, so the different European countries. Uh, you have the European Parliament that represents the people of Europe and you have the European Commission, uh, which is you know, the executive power, which is not an elected body that uh, concentrates a lot of expertise uh, across different uh, across different sectors. So in coordination is done uh, via these institutions here in Brussels. Uh, it's the commission that has been tasked with you know, producing all of the legislation I referred to before that then is addressed to, to member states and, you know, at the European Council and to the European Parliament who then discuss uh, the commission's proposals in what we call the trilogue format uh, with the commission uh, to, you know, to sign off on the new policies. And yeah, that's, uh, that's an ongoing uh, process. As I said, there's a lot. Uh, on the table, there's a lot of different files. And, you know, as we speak, the, the Fit for 55 file, for instance, that I referred to, uh, earlier is currently, you know, in being discussed in, uh, in, in parliament and at the council at the same time. It's actually, it contains, I think, something between, I think it's 11 or 12 pieces of legislation, including what you just referred to, uh, the revision of the emissions trading scheme. Uh, so it takes a lot of work. 
uh, you know, the European Union being composed, not, not being a federal state, but being uh, a union of different different countries that themselves, you know, have different organizations and different priorities. Uh, everything takes quite a bit of time. But what's what's been impressive is the, the pace at which this, these files have been moving. Uh, so, you know, back in the days, you know, a few, a few years ago, such files may have taken, uh, you know, four or five years to, you know, from beginning to end uh, to be adopted. But what you see now is real will uh, by European countries to move fast and to, to get this approved as soon as possible. So, you know, some of the some of the some of the files on FISO 55, for instance, will be adopted before the end of this year. Some will be adopted at the beginning of next year. Uh, you know, some take a bit longer than expect, expected. Some go a bit faster. It really depends. You've got lots of different committees within different institutions dealing with them. But yeah, the speed at which this is being dealt with is quite uh, quite impressive. Even, even though obviously the war in Ukraine and the and the energy war that Russia is now waging against Europe has been affecting the overall calendar uh, and delaying a few files a bit. Uh, things are still on track to to you know to get most of this approved. Uh, the trick is then to move into implementation, right? Because once you've got all of this EU legislation approved uh, in Brussels, you need to translate this into national legislation, and this can take a while. And one challenge that we have is, you know, uh, yeah, the capacity, the, capa the capabilities of, of European member states to actually implement and, and meet these targets. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's limitations that exist, you know, at government level, at national regulator level, uh, on the private sector side, uh, you know, obviously that needs a lot of financing. Uh, so there's a lot of ongoing discussions about where, you know, where to get the money for all this. Um, so we'll move into the really tough part, I think next year. I mean, it's already, it's already happening again with the, with the, this, the, this war we live in. Um, but, you know, if we want to meet the 2030 targets, uh, it'll be, it'll be a challenge. Even though I think I read last week that according to commission estimates, Europe is actually on track, uh, to meet the 2030 intermediary targets, but that meeting the 2050 target will be a lot more difficult and missing this one is a lot more likely. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, that was a really awesome overview. Moving on to our next question, what challenges does the EU face when balancing climate mitigation and climate adaptation? And again, more specifically, what are Europe's most impactful sources of greenhouse gas emissions? And what is Europe doing to prevent further accumulation of greenhouse gas in the atmosphere, which we've kind of touched on a little bit already? Yeah, so Europe has already uh, published several plans on climate mitigation and climate adaptation, again, as part of the European Green Deal. Um, I think we've come to realize that uh, we need to think about climate adaptation a lot more than we initially thought, uh, just because mitigation has become a lot more difficult. Um, so, you know, it is a challenge that that's affecting European countries differently, depending on basically where they are located geographically, the kind of climate, the, the and climate events, climate catastrophes they might be exposed to. You know, we've seen this summer different, different issues across Europe. I mean, the main issue being record high temperatures, the highest that have ever been recorded for European summer. Uh, we had droughts that added to the pressure that was already there with the, 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 the war in Ukraine. 
Um, so overall, it's diverse mix of t challenges. You know, we also have you know stronger, tougher cold snaps in winter. So you can you know we're confronting both uh, yeah extreme events both in in summer and in winter. Uh, the weather has become a lot more unpredictable. Uh, that you know poses also an extra challenge now in a at a time when we have limited access to energy. Uh, so that means that you know extra planning uh, needs to go into this. Um, I think you know for cities especially. I think many cities are thinking about climate adaptation and how to adapt cities to these challenges. Um, and you know it'll be very different if you're talking about you know Amsterdam, for instance. That's a city you know that's surrounded by by water uh, with a rising level of water in you know in in all, you know all over the world. Obviously, in the Netherlands, it's become a, a quite an important issue. And I think beyond. Um, you know, beyond what's being done in Brussels at, let's say, central uh, European level, uh, there's a lot that's been done, as I said, again, at uh, yeah, municipal and regional level, which is good. And it, which is also an effort that, you know, policymakers in Brussels and, you know, national governments uh, are trying to push. When it comes to, uh, to, to answer the second part of the question on uh, greenhouse gas emissions, I mean, it's very simple. I think uh, it's about 80% of, uh, of Europe's emissions come from energy. So I'm not talking just about energy, just the energy sector, but energy consumption across sectors, generally speaking. A lot of it comes from that. And then uh, you've, the rest is essentially split between agriculture uh, and uh, industrial processes. Um, so these are the largest emitting sectors, which also explains uh, why uh, a large part of the European Green Deal is deal, you know, is actually aiming at these sectors. Uh, there's a lot on energy. There's a huge agriculture aspect to it. There's, um, you know, about you know making agriculture more sustainable, broadly speaking. There is on you know a lot on greening industries, for instance, by you know replacing natural gas in, uh, in energy intensive processes where possible with hydrogen or you know other innovative uh, processes. So and then there's another uh, aspect of things that I think has been progressing a bit faster actually in the US and in the UK, which is carbon capture and storage and yeah, the broader issue of you know carbon removals, etc. So there's there, there has been European strategies on this. There are plans, there are there is existing regulation, but I think I think other jurisdictions, so namely the US and the UK, as I said, have progressed a bit further, a bit faster on this. I think there was to some extent the feeling that uh, maybe this was not an essential part of the of the move towards net zero uh, in some circles that we could maybe do without it there was you know reluctance uh to push these solutions because some were afraid that this was basically giving some sort of like you know if you agree on carbon capture you you would sort of you know agree to keep you know gas fired plants longer because you could you know so there was kind of a conflict between ending fossil fuels as much as possible and you know keeping yeah, keeping gas as a transition fuel with the use of CCS, etc. I think that has that has changed a bit over the last couple of years. There's less resistance to that to these kind of solutions. The European Commission is, you know, seriously considering doing more on the carbon capture front. And uh, yeah, there's overall, you know, a lot less position to towards that kind of of technologies. People understand that every technology 
uh, is going to be needed if you actually want to reach net zero by 2050. And, you know, even that is going to be tough. Yeah. So I think, yeah, that gives you a good overview of, uh, of uh, what people are trying to do here, I think. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, I think we have time for our last question, uh, which is more current event focused. So Europe is currently facing an energy crisis. How might this affect the EU's goals, both positively and negatively, negatively to achieve carbon neutrality by 2050? Yeah, it's a good question, and I think that's uh, we this you know European policymakers and you know think tanks like us are trying to think about this at the moment. What is the impact of this war uh, on uh, the road to 2030 and 2050? There is an impact. It's they will and it's and it's going to be strong. I think you know we need to do a bit of research around this, and you know to to basically come up with a plan B uh, or you know different scenarios that may take us to the to the targets within the same time frame. But you know that we we need to we need to basically think about how how to get there because it was already tough. It makes it extra hard because I mean the the tension that exists on energy markets in Europe at the moment is not going anywhere. It's not going to stop after this winter. Um, everybody's been saying that next winter, so winter 23, 24, uh, will be tougher than this one uh, because we started 2022 with uh, access to a lot of Russian gas that we now don't have access to. So next year may be worse. And you know what it means is that in the meantime we have to use everything that's available to keep the lights on, and to avoid you know too much disruption uh, of you know basically the delivery of energy to people across Europe, people, industries, and the overall economy. And that means that we had to you know across countries uh, we had to turn coal-fired plants back on. Uh, some of them that were supposed to be phased out, you know, this year or next year will have to be phased out later. Uh, yeah, we're sort of in a, you know, it's a all hands on deck situation and it will have an impact on the trajectory. As I said before, you know, reaching the 2050 target was difficult before. It's now extra difficult. But at the same time, the war is giving extra impetus to European governments to roll out renewable energy solutions faster. Uh, you know, whether you're talking about wind, solar, hydrogen, there's just an incentive now in order to reduce the dependency on Russian gas and on natural gas, more broadly speaking, to accelerate uh, the move towards uh, net zero. It's basically beyond just environmental goals. It's now an energy security matter, uh, which you know actually gets some people that might not have been fully on board with the transition before. You get them on board now with these energy security arguments. Uh, so on the very short term, in the next couple of years, I think Europe's emissions, I mean, I cannot really say if they're going to go up or stay at the same level or go down, but less than expected. But for sure, uh, you know, the road to net zero is negatively affected over the next couple of years, say probably next two or three to four years. But if you look at a, you know, at the time frame between now and 2030, I think we can make up for it, you know, by accelerating the move on other fronts. Uh, again, I think we need to do a bit of modeling, uh, a bit of uh, scenario building, and then, you know, 
we'll have to look back at this when we get to 2030 to see to see you know if we manage to actually accelerate or to even out the the extra emissions that we'll produce over the short term. But yeah, difficult to tell at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that that concludes the questions. I wanted to thank you for joining me today and sharing your expertise on EU energy. It's very helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Very interesting. To, very nice to speak to you. 